0: Thank you for coming to uh, our security by the book series today we're very fortunate to have amy chua of yale law school talking about her new book political tribes group instinct and the fate of nations Um, unlike a lot of books that we do in this series this is a national security series this book transcends national security and foreign relations and domestic relations and it uses a common idea to give really profound insight into both. So Amy, thank you for coming and why don't you just tell us what the book's about.
1: Well, thanks for having me and thank you all for coming. Um, So I actually started writing this book three years ago as a pure foreign policy book. Um, The, it was uh, drawing on an older book I'd written in 2003 called World on Fire, um, and so very simply, the, the idea was that we, in our foreign policy in the United States, tend to see things in terms of grand ideological battles, whether it's communism versus capitalism. And then it was you know authoritarianism versus democracy, and most recently freedom versus um, you know terrorism or acts of evil. And because of these ideological blinders, we are spectacularly blind, to, or actually ignorant about, the group identities that matter most to people on the ground in the countries where we go in and are trying to help. Um, And these identities are often not national, um, but they could be ethnic, sectarian, religious, clan-based, regional, tribal, whatever. And this is in stark contrast to the British for reasons, fascinating reasons that I explore, who uh, were just uh, obviously for divisive purposes, but they were extremely group conscious. I found these old, uh, I have research assistants here, um, uh, these old um, British documents. Um, uh, you know about India just they knew everything about the caste, the rituals the timing and they used that of course to, to pit groups against each other. So anyway, I say that th- America's blindness to these um, uh, the power of these group identities explains um, some of our greatest foreign policy disasters over the last 50 years from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq to Vietnam sorry to Venezuela. Um, The what happened, um, why this is now a different, the book it is, is that last February, I was about five months away from having to turn in the whole uh, manuscript, I was teaching a class called International Business Transactions, um, which I've taught for 20 years, and I was making a point I've made for 20 years, which is that because the developing world has such different political and social dynamics than the United States, we keep messing it up. We just don't understand these other countries. So I'm reading from a passage from my own book, and it says, um, under certain conditions, populist leaders with no political experience can sweep to power on an anti-establishment platform, horrifying the elites, uh, tapping into deep social resentments you know, in a racially uh, tinged way. And I, I stopped, um, uh, and I was actually reading about Hugo Chavez that was at the passage about Venezuela. And I stopped and 80 people in my class looked up, they were all thinking the same thing and one woman said something and she said, it sounds exactly like you're describing the United States. Um, and so in I reshuffle, I, I, a light bulb went off. I actually saw things in a different way and I do think that this lens of not, we're so fixated on how did we get to this weird spot here. Once you start seeing it as part of a larger global pattern, there are a lot of insights, and not just as a global pattern with Europe. I know a lot of people say, oh, we're like the far right movements. I think, for reasons I'll explain, that we are now starting to display in this country many of the destructive political dynamics more typically associated with what we would call the developing world or non-Western countries. Um, So so that's kind of what the book is about.
0: That's great. So we'll start with the foreign policy before we get to some of the examples. I think just choosing a couple of them because they're all basically the same. But just, could you just review the extraordinary work you reviewed in the book about the, the kind of how we're hardwired to be tribalistic and how it's just a natural tendency?
1: Yes. So human beings, like our fellow primates, are tribal. We 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 are desperate to belong to groups, and we will force a group, make a group, uh, uh, almost instinctively. Um, and do I have to, do you want me to tell the red shirt, blue sure, shirt thing? Okay, ahead. so Look. just one um, one of the many studies, they they took a bunch of kids between the ages of four and eight and they divided them in half, red group, blue group. And they gave them corresponding t-shirts, so red t-shirts and blue t-shirts. They then sat these children in front of these computer docs and showed all the children computer edited images of random children, half of whom were wearing red t-shirts and half of whom were wearing blue t-shirts. And then they asked the subjects for their reactions to the kids in in the images. The responses were astounding. Even though these children didn't know anything about the uh, children in the computer images, They consistently said that they liked the children better wearing the uh, color that they were wearing. They allocated more resources to the children wearing those colors. And they thought that those children wearing their color were basically morally superior in every way. And most scary, they displayed strong unconscious bias. They recounted, they told stories about these boys and girls. And then when asked to talk about them, the children consistently remembered all of the good things about the children wearing their color and all of the negative things about the children wearing the other color. So the point is that it's just, we we can overcome it, uh, um, but our natural tendency, our default is to be very tribal. And once we connect to a group, we tend to cling to it. We will defend it no matter what. Um, it's not always bad. We'll come back to that. But um, I, I do think it's, dangerous when tribalism takes over a political system. Because when we connect with a group, we start to see everything through the lens of that group. And what can happen is that facts and arguments start to not matter. And just one final study, our, my colleague uh, Dan Kahan uh, and others too um, have found, that. so you could take a group of people and show them the exact same numbers, the exact same data studies, um, let's say about gun control. And looking at the same data, half of those people will conclude that's why we need fewer guns, and the other half, based on the exact same numbers and analysis uh, studies, will conclude that's why we need more guns. And here's the kicker. He found that people who are better at numbers, who are smarter, with more numeracy skills, are better at manipulating the facts to fit their side's view. So that's very disturbing, because it, it means that unless you get out of your tribal mindset, that's why we get so little progress done, because it's not determinative. People will just make interpret facts to fit their side's perspective.
0: So that basic insight is kind of at the foundation of both the foreign policy part of the book and the domestic policy part of the book. So let me summarize what I take to be the main foreign policy claim, and that is that the United States in the last 50 years, I think you start with the Vietnam example, has intervened in part to try to bring democracy to, to nations that were striven with ethnic conflict or group conflict, and that we didn't appreciate uh, the the intensity of the group conflict, and we didn't appreciate that bringing democracy and loosening the, what were, at the time, authoritarian regimes would, in fact, open up these extraordinarily vicious tribal conflicts and that we were blinded by that over and over again, and believed that we could bring democracy to these worlds, partly because we at least thought we were able to have an assimilative assimilative culture at home, and therefore we were blind to how destructive this was going to be abroad. Is that a fair
1: yeah, disc- uh, yeah disc- summary? Very fair. I mean, I would say that we have in the United States again for very it is idiosyncratic reasons, different from a lot of European countries. We, I think, tend to view democracy as a panacea. Um, that maybe there's some group conflict and tribal stuff, but democracy and markets will actually um, melt those away. So we think of elections as the, as the cure, you know, there are all these regression studies, we're gonna have inter-ethnic parties form. Um, and the, going back to the reason, I think that a lot of it is it, our own history, We this country was dominated for almost 200 years, economically, politically, culturally, by a white majority. And that just being economic and political power all concentrated in one group's hands can produce lots of invidious results, uh, slavery, obviously, but it's also politically very stable. And it hides the fact that markets and democracies sometimes can be in tension. If if one, you know, markets can sometimes benefit one ethnic group and democracy can benefit another. But in the United States, we, democracies actually, there's a reason we romanticized it.
0: So... The failure. So, but but as you point out, time and time again in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya, in Vietnam, we, we we keep making the same mistake over and over again, thinking that democracy can resolve or paper over these conflicts. And time and time again, I think, as you say, it kind of unleashed these forces. Yeah.
1: So, I one of the reasons I wrote this book is um, uh, in two thousand and three, in the afterword to my book World on Fire. I predicted Iraq exactly right. And not just like, oh, it's probably not gonna be good, but precisely. Um, And that's because I coined this term market-dominant minorities um, in 2002. And again, this is kind of a taboo thing. Um, I got in a lot of trouble when that came out too, but a market-dominant minority is a small ethnic minority Um, often viewed as an outsider, that controls vast amount of a country's economic wealth. So for example, the 3% Chinese minority in Indonesia controls about 70 to 80% of Indonesia's private economy, including almost all the largest conglomerates. And I think it's very uncomfortable for Americans to deal with this concept. Um, at first it's like, you must be stereotyping. Um, and I just present all the numbers. I think in the United States we're much more comfortable with minorities that are both economically and politically oppressed. Because we know how to deal with that morally. You know, Tibetans, Uyghurs, we need to not have oppression. What do you do with a rich minority? So I coined this term and I saw that in Iraq on the eve of our intervention, and a lot of our friends got it wrong. I mean, no, if, you know, we have a lot of friends who said, no, we're going to have inter, you know, parties are going to, the, the process will bring groups together, they'll have to form these alliances. And I said, look at the numbers. We have a 15% Sunni minority, a market-dominant minority, that has been dominant for actually hundreds of years. Uh, first under the Ottomans, which were a Sunni power. Then under the British, who loved to do divide and rule and rule through that minority. And finally under Saddam Hussein. So I, pr- to me, it was a no-brainer that when we bring democracy, majority rule, who are we empowering? The long-oppressed 60% Shia who have been upset and persecuted and furious, they're going to weaponize their vote for payback. And that's exactly what happened. Um, And parties, the groups voted along sectarian lines. Shias voted for Shias, Sunnis voted for Sunnis, Kurds voted for Kurds. And then Sunnis, once they realized this is not going to go our way, the Shias are going to use their power to exact revenge, they joined the insurgency. The Sunnis decided to block democracy, joined up with al-Qaeda, and ISIS, again, we think of it as a fundamentalist movement, is a Sunni movement. Yeah. Um, so, so that's an example of democracy actually catalyzing group conflict as opposed to smoothing it away.
0: And you give a lot of examples of that happening in the book. So let me just... Uh, I, I, it's a it's a wonderful prescription. It explains a lot of different events. I'm not quite sure of the mechanism. I mean, you, you argue in the book that we're kind of naive or blind to how democracy is going to work in these uh, these countries that are that have these tribal, these submerged tribal conflicts, in part because we think democracy has worked well at home. But you also said something in your in your answer just now. You said it's difficult to deal with these concepts of cultural and group identity. And I wonder if part of the problem is is that we've been so trained in this country to suppress those ideas, maybe even t- politically correct to suppress them, that it's just not a legitimate factor to take into account, even in foreign policy. Is that, could, could that be partly an explanation? Uh,
1: partly. I mean, so I actually say that our group blindness, compared to the British, it's really very stark um, when they were, had the, you know, were on the world stage. I say that I think it's rooted in both the best of America and the worst of America, um... Part of the best, I mean, this is a little bit of a different slant, we really have had exceptional success assimilating incredibly diverse peoples. Yes, mostly from uh, you know Europe, but, but the idea I think is, look, if Italians and Germans and Poles and Hungarians and Jews could all become Americans within one generation, yeah, you know, Sunnis, Shias, Kurds, why can't they all become Iraqis? Uh, let's just have some elections. Uh, The second reason I think that we're uh, blind is the darkest part of America, and I I actually now hate this word because I think it's overused, but I think it's racism. So um, a Vietnam chapter, um, uh, one of my big points is we, um, United States, Americans couldn't really, didn't really think there was much difference between the Vietnamese and the Chinese. Um, they're all Asians, Japanese, Korean, you know, just Asians. Uh, and it was just a just a fatal error. Because even though they're all Asians, the Vietnamese view the Chinese as this mortal enemy. We think that we're central in Vietnam history. For the Vietnamese, China, which sits like a huge behemoth over tiny Vietnam, is the first uh, is the first um, uh, is almost like the, the defining force um, so and, and yes yeah, so i we also missed the fact that vietnam had a market dominant minority so most of the capitalists in vietnam this is actually a new angle um that i'm excited about most of the capitalists in vietnam were not even members of the vietnamese people they were members of this t- chinese minority so here we come in we're like we're going to put in capitalism and all of our wartime policies benefited this little Chinese group because they were the middlemen. You know, our troops needed provisioning, supplies. They did. They also controlled the black market, brothels. So we were shooting ourselves in the foot. We come in unaware that everything we're doing actually looks like we thought we were saving the world, you know, from the domino theory, communism. What we were actually, how we were perceived is that we're putting in policies just helping this resented, outsider minority that always had been so dominant there. And those Chinese minority didn't even, um, were very, um, they acted like foreigners. They dodged the draft. They didn't even fight on the Vietnamese side. Um, So they were really viewed as a a very resented force. Um, One more fun fact that I just think is so interesting. I'm of the age where I remember the Vietnamese boat people um, in the late 70s. Uh, we refer to them, you know, refugees, it turns out that um, in 1978 for example, 80% of those Vietnamese boat people were actually ethnic Chinese. Um, and I'll sometimes ask students, uh, because there was ethnic cleansing and they were sent out, um, and. I'll talk to Vietnamese students and they'll say, no, 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 I'm just Vietnamese, no, no, no. I'll say, go ask your parents or grandparents. They'll come back, oh my gosh, you know, because they couldn't admit that they were Chinese uh, because that would be very dangerous. So they was, um, but I thought that was interesting too.
0: So let me ask you one more foreign policy question, and I want to push you on some of the implications of, of your critique because it's a pretty dramatic sweeping critique of the dominant American foreign policy commitment, at least since the end of the Cold War, and strands of it going back long before then, and that is trying to spread democracy to the world. And you're basically saying that that is the road to disaster in a lot of contexts. Is, so my question is, is that is that fair? And what is the foreign policy prescription? Because it, it might require a large rethinking of some of our foreign policy commitments. And it also sounds, I don't know if you like this label, very realist. Is that fair? Um, so
1: I think, uh, you know, this is crazy, but I'm a huge optimist on all fronts. Um, I think if you read the book you will find, I've had this reaction, that we made so many obvious mistakes. So many obvious mistakes. Um, so to answer your question, um, what is democracy, right? What is it? And I've been saying, what I argue in the book is that we're not even exporting what we have. We'll get to what we have l- later. That's but, the next question. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's you know, demo- so if you're saying, should we do overnight elections with majority rule? Um, yeah, I think that that is a not a smart prescription overnight. As you know, in our country, we had a we don't like to admit it, but we had very gradual process before we moved to universal suffrage. You know, first we had property qualifications; we didn't let the poor vote. Obviously, minorities, women couldn't vote. Uh, and so it was a gradual process. And by the time we arrived at something like universal suffrage, we had the New Deal in, we had redistributive mechanisms. So it, it's I, I think that we have not even learned from our own history. And by the way, the United States is uniquely naive. I used to go to these conferences down in Latin America. It would always be about democracy and rule of law. But Jack, I could tell, and I didn't. See, I didn't think my colleagues could that the Latin American elites, all very progressive. We're talking about something else when they call it for democracy. That's why it's an answer. Uh, their 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 sense of democracy often has a lot of minority protections in it. A lot more edu- education. You know, um, people uh, from developing countries um, have long been afraid of 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 poor majorities, and we're almost like in the you know minority not to worry about that. But
0: but is, but is it fair to say that your prescription would be? very dangerous to intervene in Libya, very dangerous to intervene the way we did in Iraq. Afghanistan, the, the, the idea that we could transform that society was foolish. We went around about trying to bring a sort of defeat communism in Vietnam in a way that was foolish. It sounds like it entails a much less interventionist foreign policy. Is that right?
1: I'm, I would do it case by case. I worked very closely. I used to have a whole chapter on Libya, um, but it was too complicated. For uh, uh, But I worked with a student, a Libyan-American student, and his take, and so that's why I I resist a one answer for all thing. He actually thinks it was right to intervene in Libya for all reasons I can explain, Um, but he actually just agrees with President Obama, who said that our, he he said, first, our analysts um, failed to understand the importance of tribal division in that country, which is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, And secondly, he said that he thought that failing to plan for the day after Uh, in Libya was the greatest mistake of his presidency. So to answer your question, I think um, we almost did the worst of all worlds, right? Either not intervene um, or intervene with some sense, but I I, I understand where President Obama was coming from. He was gun-shy from Iraq. He didn't want to be in there, right? But um, there, there is a glimmer of hope. It, it, it didn't immediately disintegrate Libya. Um, it actually, there were some, it was a gradual process. There were some elections. I mean, things started to happen. It could have gone differently. I think it could have gone differently. So I wouldn't say okay. blanket, no intervention, no.
0: Okay. Um, so let's move on to really the extraordinary thing about this book is this same idea explains a lot about foreign policy and explains a lot about domestic politics. So let's talk about domestic politics. I'm a little confused in the book about this idea of a supergroup. And it, I'll describe it, and you can tell me where I get it wrong. I think you say that the United States is the only contemporary or the main contemporary supergroup, and that a supergroup is a group or a nation that can assimilate other tribal groups or other groups and forge some kind of a common identity while at the same time allowing those identities to flourish. Is mm-hmm. that?
1: Um, I would put it even simpler, because it's really the second half um, that is important. So I just think a a super group, group, like like Rome was a super group, you know, is, you have two requirements, very simple. One, a very strong overarching collective identity, uh, you know, Roman or American, and secondly, um, it, it must be a group that accepts individuals of all backgrounds but allows those subgroup identities to flourish. So I'm flinching when you say f- assimilation. I'm not a okay. Mark Leela um, y- uh, immediately liberalism, everybody. You know, I think that, that um, this is a unique country. So I have a line like it would be weird to say um, Irish French. Right, that what kind of concept? But you can be Irish American, so you could be Croatian American, Korean American, uh, Libyan American, and intensely patriotic at the same time. And I think that's actually, I know it sounds very simplistic, Jack, but I think it's such a a a a, um, a unique and special thing about us. Um, and I think a lot of the, the, the yeah.
0: Okay, so right. th- so there's this idea that of this uh, American identity, even while groups, quad groups flourish. Uh, but the, And there's also this idea that we're losing that. Mm-hmm. And so could you explain that arc? And it has to do with the history of racism and the rise of identity politics. Yes.
1: So America, and the election of Donald Trump. Yeah, so America, uh, just to repeat the obvious, was a country that was uh, overwhelmingly dominated politically, economically, culturally, by a white majority for most of our history. Obviously, white was always a moving target. Uh, some groups that are considered white today were not then. But that's the basic dynamic. And so democracy was very... Um, felt very stable, and it felt like we weren't tribal. It felt like we didn't have all this chaos, and that's because there was one big super tribe sort of imposing its identity on everything else, and there were plenty of subgroups that were just silenced or killed or, you know, so they were there. So, but when a group is so overwhelmingly dominant, it could do terrible things, slavery, oppress, but it can also be more generous. Um, And what's happened now is two things in America. First, because of the massive demographic um, shifts that is uh, huge immigration flows in the last 30 years uh, in terms of sheer numbers, but also in terms of where they're coming from, not just from Europe, but principally now from Asia, Latin America, Africa. Whites are now on the verge of losing their majority status um, in this country. Predictions usually put it around 2044 that whites will no longer be a majority. The result of that is that every group in America now feels threatened. It's not just the minorities who have always felt threatened, but whites now feel threatened. And some of these studies, statistics, I had to go back and check them, I just couldn't believe them. 67% of working class whites feel that they are more discriminated against and persecuted than minorities, 67% of working class whites, and fully, and more than half of all whites Feel that way. So, uh, and not just whites, you know, and uh, Asians and Latinos feel threatened. It's not just Jews and Muslims who feel threatened now. Christians feel threatened. You can really see that in the political rhetoric right now. Um, With Donald Trump in the office, uh, women feel threatened. But with the Me Too movement, men feel threatened.
0: But who are they threatened by? Are these uh, the, uh, other groups, is that the yes, idea? Yes, they
1: feel very targeted by, I mean, it, it, in fact, it's in the vocabulary. Um, uh, conservatives and liberals both feel threatened. I mean, they they all, so when groups feel threatened, that's when they get more insular and more tribal, and that's when you things start to feel zero-sum. And quickly, the other thing that happens that I think gets missed when people just hurl around, you know, white supremacy, the second big thing that happened partly because of the decline in geographical mobility, is that I think is that class and really education has divided America's white majority. The divide between the people in this room, you know, uh, uh, coastal, urban, not necessarily wealthy, but educated, multicultural, cosmopolitan, we've traveled, the divide between whites uh, in this category and whites in the heartland is so stark now that I actually say it's almost like an ethnic difference. You know, I've spent 20 years, I have one article where I have a 20-page footnote defining ethnicity, um, you know, all the different theories. But some of the markers are here. There was so little intermarriage. It is m- more likely that a Caucasian person from the coast will marry an Asian or a South Asian or somebody from Nigeria than somebody from, you know, Appalachia, actually, because there's a different vocabulary, different politics.
0: So how does the decline of white dominance relate to the rise of identity politics? And what is the dynamic that it's creating?
1: So America's always unique. Um, What I have said is that United States, one of the reasons we had so much stability with democracy is we never had a market-dominant minority, right? Again, a market-dominant minority is a little outsider minority that dominated the economy while being politically weak. We didn't have that. It was just whites controlled everything. Now what's happened is I think we are starting to see the emergence of our own very peculiar form of a market-dominant minority. And for lack of a better term, I'm identifying these coastal elites, um, uh, us. And it's, so first of all, I have lots of caveats in the book. Obviously coastal elites are not an ethnic minority. They're not a, a religious minority. But having said that, it is, the parallels are astounding. Um, wealth in this country is enormously concentrated in our coasts, uh, Silicon Valley, Wall Street, the Washington establishment, Hollywood, the media. Um, although coastal elites are not an ethnic group, we are, they are extremely insular and culturally distinct. Um, we t- we, we um, dress very similarly, we, um, we even have our own language. We're gonna come back to this. I'm so well trained how to speak in a way that do- it doesn't offend different groups. Um, we are superior. We view, we view ourselves as cosmopolitan, tolerant, not like these other parts of the country, um, and we're extremely judgmental. So the, here's the interesting thing. In countries that have a market-dominant minority, a a very powerful, resented minority that is viewed as an outsider, here's the thing about coastal elites. Because the heartland, or demagogues, um, from the point of view of er, er, rural America, um, working-class America, Coastal elites are always trying to help minorities. They love minorities, they love immigrants, they want to let all the immigrants in. They love foreigners. They always want to help the African poor. They don't care about our own poor. You know, they want to, and so so this language that in developing countries you see over and over, the rhetoric when you have a market dominant minority is you all will always really systematically, almost with very few exceptions, you will find a populist demagogue or many coming in saying it's time to take back our country the reason you're so miserable is these outsiders are stealing the nation's wealth they're giving it away to foreigners and it is time to t- it's for it's time to take back the country for the real owners um, and you can really see in "Make America Great Again," um, you know, over, it's not as explicit, but but it's definitely a lot of people feel that that's what he was referring to, and he actually did use the uh, President Trump did use the term "Let's take our country back" from from Mexico and from China. So it's a very parallel dynamic um, with democracy um, uh, really being the engine for this, because um, when you ask about the mechanism, what gets more votes? Right? Do you propose? People are upset. Lack of people are frustrated. Upper mobility is slowing. They want the American dream. Do you propose? You know what progressives propose? Well, we have so much structural racism and oppression. We need massive institutional reform. We need major redistribution, which is going to take a long time. Um, Or you know what? It's it's the Mexicans and the Chinese and the uh, you know the Muslims. And it's a very effective way of generating votes. And Milosevic saw this, Serbia for the Serbs. Um, I mean, it's everywhere. In Zimbabwe, you know, uh, Zimbabwe for the black Zimbabweans, whites out of Zimbabwe, it's extremely effective.
0: So that's a brilliant account and explanation for the rise of Donald Trump and his presidency. How does the coastal heartland distinction map on to what I think of as a different kind of identity politics of race and gender? and? Pushing that identity politics on the culture in the universities and the like. How does that relate to the coastal heartland and and how does it relate to our politics?
1: Well, first of all, uh, the coastal elite concept is very misleading. I'm using it loosely to to kind of get the concept out. I mean, from the point of view of um, a lot of people in the middle of the country, college activists, Black Lives Matter activists who view themselves as oppressed minorities are part of these coastal elites. Uh, It was a really brilliant Nigerian-American student who gave me this insight. I couldn't believe, I perceived as a coastal elite. Um, uh, And Republicans and Republican establishment and Democratic establishment all lumped into this. But to answer your question, speaking very, oversimplifying a little bit, but I think this is accurate, coastal elites tend to be much more receptive to what you're calling identity politics. Um, this is something that actually happened on the left, um, uh, as some of you may remember. Um, even just you know, 50 years ago, the civil rights, the watchword of the left 50 years ago, were they appealed to group transcending ideals. The watchwords were inclusivity or equality. And we were looking, the idea was to a day where skin color wouldn't matter. Um, that was Martin Luther King. Um, universal human rights, right? Super progressive position. Not even just skin color. Even a time when national boundaries wouldn't matter, right? We're all going to be just individuals. That was a very progressive left-wing position. Starting probably in the late 80s and 90s, a lot of progressives, understandably, this is justifiable, started to see that the right's supposedly colorblind rhetoric, oh, we're group blind, um, we're universalist, was being used to oppose affirmative action and oppose a lot of policies that the left wanted to see that they thought they needed to redress racial and historical inequities. So they were like, you know, we're sick of this group neutral um, language. And today on college campuses, um, as Jack well knows, group blindness is the ultimate sin. If you try to propose group blindness, you will instantly be branded, uh, as contributing to structural race. I mean, really, you know, that's not an exaggeration. And the groups have also multiplied, um, because, and I'm, you know, I, people don't quite understand me. I'm very sympathetic to this. I, I think, I feel like everything is black and white. Get rid of identity politics. It's all their fault. And, I am, as a minority woman, I I I am very tribal person. I derive a lot of uh, my own strength and identity from who I am. I've been frustrated all my life, you know, people speaking for me, telling me what's good for me. So I get it. and even a term like intersectionality. What happens is these terms get you need weaponized. You need to explain that okay, term. so these these terms get. These this is terms,
0: very much an academic term.
1: It's very academic, and it gets um, weaponized. The the right now just makes fun of it. Um, but as with so many of these things, the original driving force was a good one. Um, and intersectionality is the idea that you we have more than one group, so that. A Latino woman's experience is very different from an Asian woman's experience. Is very different from, and then there are more. If I, so a gay Asian woman's experience is very different from a straight Asian, and this can this can multiply. There are you know over, endlessly. It can yeah a hundred different um, gender classifications now. And but I am not just one to make fun of it. This is a thing. I think it's easy to just. This is part of the problem. So I have a gay Asian student. Adopted from North Carolina, who said, "You know, it is such. It, it is so important for me to actually be with other people who understand me." So I, I get where it's coming from. My critique, yes, I'm I'm pretty hard on both sides. Um, it's the point to the point where um, sometimes it seems frivolous. Some of the things um, uh, I have a very progressive student who is so to the left of everybody here he is, I'm sure, I think is. Parents are undocumented, um, Mexican American. And he helped, he was one of my research assistants, incredibly important, really criticizing himself. And he said, I think the left uh, made so many mistakes. Um, we focused on some things that were not important. He's like, okay, so the nachos are inauthentic, you know, or the sombrero. Uh, if everything is racist and sexist, then nothing is. And what he said, and you know, people here have different political views, but what he said is, I think that the left cried wolf too many times so that when the real wolf came along, no one even noticed. Everybody was numbed. Um, so that's, you know, I have a kind of nuanced view on identity politics. No, I
0: agree. You, I completely agree. You you describe it well, you defend it well, and you critique it well. It's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a very fair-minded account in that regard. So the, the book tells what I viewed as a very d- discouraging story about what seemed like the possibility of assimilation when which may not have been that but may have been only made possible because there was a white dominant majority and as that white dominant majority loses power it's becoming angrier and more insecure and trying to grab its benefits for its group all these other groups are seeing themselves as groups trying to grab the goodies for themselves and it is really your explanation for how uh, discordant our society is so the question is and the most I read the book as being mostly pretty discouraging I was I was even more depressed about our politics after I read your book than before. But you have this chapter at the end where you you where you're op, you're optimistic, and and you've said in some of your interviews that that you're you remain optimistic. So I'm not optimistic. Tell me why should, we should be optimistic, and I'm going to tell you why I disagree.
1: Okay, so so, so here are some interesting statistics. Um, uh, many of the people, um, maybe most of the people who are most against immigration and afraid of immigration in this country are actually people who um, maybe have never met an immigrant or actually interacted with them. So, so the fear um, is going from zero to one, not 20% to 30%. It's kind of interesting. Uh, so my favorite studies in that last uh, epilogue are also about uh, how we as humans differ from other primates. We can't overcome tribalism. The Enlightenment Project was an attempt to, and America was supposed to be, right? These principles of democracy and rule of individualism. But the studies that I find very heartening are that show very, very vigorously that if you can pull people out of their tribes and have them interact as human beings, it's unbelievable what progress can be made. Big caveat, I am not just saying... Toss them together, more exposure. There are tons of studies that show that more diversity actually makes people hate each other more, right? I mean, just just putting a lot of different people together, that's not what I'm talking about. The studies are very specific that if you can pull them out of their tribal context and have them interact. So you take somebody who voted for President Trump and somebody violently against and say, um, talk. you cannot talk about politics but talk about your hopes for your children, pets, Movies, pizza, sports, and people will find common ground. And I'll just give two quick examples. The integration of the military in the 50s, super uplifting uh, example. It, it was as bad as it was today. 99% public opinion against this. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but vi- you know, and in the military too against it. But after they did it, more studies, more surveys, and, and what they found was first that the integrated units were as effective or superior to the all-white units. And then when they interviewed the people, it was amazing. People were like, you know, when you're forced to sleep in the same quarters and miss your parents together and eat the same food, it, it, it you know, and it wasn't just about black and white. Irish Americans had never met Swedish Americans and they had accents at the time and Italian Americans and Mexican Americans. What they said is when, you're, when you have to trust your life to somebody else, You don't care what accent they have or what color of skin. And it's an incredibly uplifting. In fact, the military continues to be, I think, a very good example. And the other one is same-sex marriage. Um, Just 30 years ago, uh, 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 90% of Americans were against same-sex marriage. Now it's about 60% in favor. That's a very dramatic change in 30 years. How? How? Again really clear evidence it's because this faceless group these people suddenly became people you knew suddenly you realize oh my gosh this includes my cousin my my son my neighbor my colleague my friend and once you could see these people as human beings the norm changed very quickly actually very quickly so i'm i and and, and on the i'm very depressed uh, i mean about the market dominant minority thing because i did say in the new york times that I have found zero cases, uh, mostly from the developing world, of countries with a market-dominant minority having overcome these dynamics. But here's the thing. I don't think we necessarily have one. I think, you know, ours is such a weird, everything's a construct. I mean, even ethnicity is. But this particular form of a market-dominant minority is really a construct. But
0: it is the case that there aren't any hopeful examples out there about a a majority-dominant becoming, losing the majority, groups rising up, there, there aren't any examples in history. Are there or no obvious examples where that process went well?
1: Um, not when you have a very small, resented minority that is viewed as just so um, not caring about so, the So you think American. that the fact
0: that the whites are still predominant, it, and maybe because we have this uh, at least partial history of assimilation and group identity?
1: I... It's true that when I come to D.C., I get more pessimistic. I, 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 uh, I mean, it, New Haven
0: makes you less pessimistic. Well, okay,
1: th- those are the two cities. Okay, okay. I mean, I just I just came from Seattle. I mean, it's it's in- so. First of all, we'll, we, maybe we could talk about social media. But I, the loudest voices are definitely the most depressing, and and, and also, this is a political city. Uh, So that's scary, because what's going to win votes? And that is discouraging. But my own view, and I think somebody should do a survey of that, I think ordinary Americans all across all races are, are, are getting tired of it. It's very corrosive, you know, to be so mad all the time. And I think a lot, there are lots, I just learned about this Better Angels group, and I get emails from high school students, Generation Z, we're taking bipartisan, whatever. I, so I, to answer your question, I think, no, I don't think it's white staying uh, dominant as the right answer. Um, I think that if we can take measures so that the coastal elites and the heartland are not viewed as uh, enemies, like different groups, you know, there should be fluidity. For example, um, you know, David Schleicher's work, just more... If we could fix... Is your like, colleague David
0: Schleicher at yes, Yale? Yes,
1: my colleague David Schleicher at Yale work on geographical mobility. It used to be so much more. You could be in the middle of the country, not wealthy, go to public school, move out. Now, with the cost of education, the, how expensive... It's impossible to live in D.C. or but New York. Let
0: me quickly make the pessimistic case, <laughs> and then I'll ask you one final question. So I agree with what you said in the book and what you say here. I, too, see, especially after the election of Donald Trump, signs all over the place, I would say small signs <laughs> of... of a lot of institutions trying to make efforts to recognize this problem and deal with it and overcome it. The reason I'm pessimistic in addition to all the reasons you give in your book is one because what you just mentioned the internet and social media which because of its structure, because of the splintering and decentralization of the media, because private speech is so easy to utter and because extreme speech tends to get, tends to get attention. That's one thing that's exacerbating the problem. Then the other side I'm just not sure what the unifying ideal is. I mean, you talked about patriotism earlier. Your book makes pretty clear that a good chunk of the country, mostly on the coasts, don't much care for patriotism. They're more cosmopolitan than patriotic. Um, uh, So, uh, you know, maybe the answer is to try to replicate the example of of World War II, which is a clear success case with the integration of, of the military. Maybe national service would be an answer, um, but that's a heavy, heavy, heavy lift. So so my last question, my next last question is given the internet and given it's not clear what the ideal is, how do you see us becoming a supergroup again?
1: I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the work is in how do we get that connective tissue? How can we have an overarching national identity that is going to be uh, enough to bind us um, and resonate for so many people, many of whom are now saying, that, I don't like that founding story. They were the people that enslaved us. I agree. So, again, I'm, I'm not even trying to just be I, – I think um, – I think on conservatives need to realize, conservatives think that they are the ones that are the champion of the patriotism and the strong national identity. I critique that. I think it's important to realize that having a strong identity that, uh, that it can bind Americans together isn't just a matter of flag waving and singing the anthem very loudly. If you want a lot of people to buy into this, the concept of this country as a moral and just country, it has to be perceived as legitimate. You know, if you're from a group that just sees, think your perception is that your group is just shot indiscriminately all the time, why would you buy into the idea of this country as a great country? So work needs to be done on not, I think sometimes conservatives get so frustrated with all the complaining and whining that it's like, we're there, we fixed it, and we haven't, we haven't fixed it. You know, a lot of this, what feels so terrible right now is actually just formally suppressed voices finally allowed to, to, to express themselves. On the left, I... And very harsh, um, I describe it as the scorched earth approach to history. You know, it's and I say there's a world of difference between saying we have these great ideals, this Constitution, but we have repeatedly and shamefully failed to live up to them. You know, terrible. We really haven't. There's a huge difference between saying that that we have failed to live up to these ideals and that we've got to do better, and saying that. Those ideals are just hypocrisy and lies. And, and you see this. You see Michael Moore saying that this is, America is a land of oppression, a land of cowards. Uh, this country was built on genocide. Um, so it's a huge difference. It may sound just like words, but it's, it's true that we extinguished populations. We did do those things. But to say that the principles on which we are built is white supremacy and genocide, I disagree with. And one line I have in my book is, if America really is nothing but A land of genocide, built on white supremacy. Then why is it even worth fighting for? Um, And I sometimes I hear that I I I can get depressed too while hear people saying exactly, you know. um, And but I think it is worth it, Um, you know. And on your social media thing, I I have this weird immigrant daughter's optimism like. I think that this country has the fastest self-correction mechanism. Um, you know, I, I I view 2016 election, whatever people's politics, as like shaking things up. You know, um, and right now, social media. Think how fast we went from idolizing Mark Zuckerberg and all those guys. They were they were just gods like three years ago to like most hated group in the country. Um, <laughs> And so I, so I think somebody could invent something. There's so much pro- productivity and originality here. Maybe somebody's going to come up with a social media thing that cuts through this. I don't know. I, that I don't know. sounds
0: optimistic. <laughs> let, let, let me, um, so your books all have a quality, but more so in this one, and that is your extraordinary ability to step outside of what's going on. I mean, this book is really amazing because it does an excellent job of describing these group dynamics that we all participate in, but you're really able to step outside and see both sides' perspectives, both in the positive light and the negative light. So my question is, how do you do that? Why do you do that? what t- What is it about you that makes you able to do that?
1: You know, I think I have always been an outsider. i I really feel this way, and I've actually thought about this um that's that's a that's almost a privilege and an honor for me. Um, I feel like um I I've always wanted to turn this feeling of being an outsider into a source of strength, and that's actually a thing that runs through all my books. Um, so I, I was—I grew up a, a, one of the only Chinese kid in uh, West Lafayette, Indiana, for eight years. Uh, actually, people were very nice to my family, uh, but I was always—we were the weird ones that brought Chinese food in thermoses. I had a Chinese accent. We—we we couldn't do anything that other people could do. Then I went to California, also felt completely like an outsider, just, you know, I'm very, um, I love Harvard where I went to school, um, but I was like the public school kid with big hair. I didn't even know about boarding schools. I'd never heard of the concept. You know, I didn't know that people would go. Yeah. but I mean, like, you, like the people would go sleep somewhere else if yeah, they go right, to school. Um, right. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm I feel very much an outsider, but in a good way. Not like yeah. I'm so. Uh, so I think I've always just never quite really belonged anywhere. When I go to China, I'm a total outsider. I think, right. And when I'm here, I'm yeah. You know, so you know, even like Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, um, you know, it's 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 viewed as oh my God, she's defending this strict uh, parenting, authoritarian. Um, my mother, uh, she said, no Chinese person would ever have written this book. Uh, it's so, it's so rebellious and contrary. You're taking on this whole view of how to do. It. So, so I, I think it's the a reason is not that I'm trying anything. I just actually nope. don't fit in anywhere. You
0: well, know? it's great. It's really terrific. The book's terrific. So we're going to break our pattern and take three or four questions, and I would ask that you keep the questions very short and please make them questions. Starting with Charlie Savage.
2: So hi, mean, um. I think congratulations on the book. It's really interesting having met you when you were doing World on Fire to see how you returned to this concept of the market-dominant, ethnic or non-minority, and went deeper and smarter on it. I think there's one parallel between this book and that, having read the first one and absorbed a lot of this one, I will, I will read it, is that you, you go out into the world and you find these case studies of these more simplistic societies, whether it's the Philippines. There's Filipinos and there's the Chinese. And then towards the end you do this maneuver where you apply it to the United States and because we're navel gazing Everyone focuses on that, but it's also because it's so much more complicated. It's sort of like an analogy so One of the critiques of this book at least I think came from Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine Following your your New York Times op-ed in which you identified in the Trump phenomenon uh, the, the resentment against the Wall Street elites as part of the the other that the populists were voting that, that Trump represented, and his point was actually Trumpism is Wall Street. Look at the tax cut and look at all the Goldman Sachs people running his policy, and you've you put them on the wrong side of the yeah. ledger in analyzing what's going on today. And I, what is your
1: report? yeah? Well, actually, I tweeted out something funny. Very um, funny. Um, yeah, I said uh, you know it's funny to have uh, uh, Jonathan Chait- you know mansplaining what a market-dominant minority is, given that I coined the term in 2003. Um, but I actually did have a response, Charlie. Um, I um, I actually think he's making my point. I understand um, I, 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 what I say, I actually have written about billionaire populism. And I think part of this is not understanding that, uh, again, America's very idiosyncratic, and we miss this because we're coastal elites. Our working class and struggling blue-collar Americans don't hate wealth. You know, most populist movements historically and in other countries like Latin America are left-wing. Um, they're, they're, they vote in socialist policies that's confiscate. America has this weird, it relates to this belief in upper mobility, not even actual upper mobility. Like this polls are, we have like double the amount of people believe in this country that hard work will, will make you succeed. So what I think it is, is, and there are really interesting studies, Joan Williams has done some stuff, showing that um, white working class resentment in this country is actually directed more against professionals, not the super rich. You know, people in this room are, you know, the the pointy-headed experts that look down on these people and are always calling them out. So my response is that um, it's really uh, that, because I, I wrote, America may be developing its own version of a market-dominant minority. So I think it's a simple quibble there. Our version is very idiosyncratic. It's not anti-market, it's not anti-wealth, it's not necessarily, and Donald Trump actually, it's it's almost like a cultural, Um, Donald Trump has succeeded in portraying himself as a member of the same cultural tribe, as huge swaths of America, despite the fact that he's a billionaire. It's not that they don't see that he's a billionaire, right? Um, They, he, the way he talks, the way he dresses, the, you know, the way he gorges himself on McDonald's, whereas we not vegan, you know, recyclable. um, He likes worldwide wrestling and NASCAR, things that repulse the people on the coast those are cultural affiliations and then every time he gets in trouble porn stars scandal everything races out of his mouth every time all my friends are this one now he's coming down right this bring nothing happens to his approval ratings because for them they just relate to that in their own workplace they're getting called out there so to me i think the model really works if you um i mean first of all it is actually true that um that the, the coastal elites do uh, hold a lot of the, the power. But I agree. So I don't, it's not that I, I just don't think we disagree. Um, what I say, if you read the actual book, um, which I don't, I don't think he has, uh, is that I say that it's really more of a, of a cultural or a class divide in our country rather than an economic one. Um, anyway,
0: long, long answer. Okay, so we need to have short okay, order questions sorry. and answers. Yes, ma'am. Hi,
1: Amy. Uh... Rachel Oswald, Oswald with Congressional Quarterly. I really enjoyed your talk. My question is the very top the reference that you think that both happening in America have more in common
2: with things you've seen in the developing world than in the rise of far-right parties in Europe. Can you talk about that structurally? Um,
1: yeah, I, I was saying as much with developing uh, countries. So, for example, something that happens a lot when you have a very small market-dominant minority, like the really wealthy oil elite in Venezuela. The, they were lighter skin, mostly European heritage, uh, and the 80% poor, indigenous, African descent. Um, that, uh, when you have a, mark, a dominant, resented minority uh, for a long time, and then you have democracy and you get populism, you will often get somebody um, uh, like how people perceive Donald Trump. You know, um, And then there are certain dynamics just always happen for example you will see an elite uh, you will see hate mongering and scapegoating by these demagogues because that's a very effective way to get votes it's the minority's fault it's their fault they're outsiders they're stealing um a second thing you'll see is a eroding trust in our institutions and electoral outcomes which you see in the united states they're like what he got elected it's it, it, you know it's anything but democracy it can't be democracy. Uh, it's got to be the Russians. It's got to. It's got to be anything. Um, uh, it's so, uh, and another thing you see is elite backlash. Elite being us in the risk room, backlash against the popular side of democracy. Um, and there, uh, I cannot tell you how many dinner parties I've been to where after the fourth glass of wine, um, m- and my friends are s- the most liberal, progressive, super, super left-wing people after the fourth glass of wine, say, so, you know, m- what about you know, IQ requirements for voting? Or or
0: or, or, educate or knowledge requirements? Okay, same thing, and it only takes one glass of wine in Cambridge.
1: <laughs> but I, and this is something that Latin American elites have, this is what I mean by it's not just the European. L- elites in Latin American who often view themselves as um, Marxist. I mean, they're very progressive, you know. They're terrified of mob rule. They're terrified of the uneducated masses voting in these things. Um, so, and I, there was a piece in The New Yorker where, really, I think it's the Georgetown professor uh, mentioning. So that's what I mean, that there are these d- dynamics that are actually very predictable, and they're as much present in the developing world as just, not just the European countries.
0: We have time for one more question. The man in the back, yes. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, so uh,
2: on the foreign policy question, it seems like uh, the problem you've identified is one that doesn't necessarily have a solution that is morally acceptable to the United States. If we if we introduce democracy, there's a national backlash, the, the market dominant minority gets ethnically cleansed. If we uh, if we play the nationalist card, if we, we are more clever, as you suggest we should have been in Vietnam, the market dominant minority gets ethnically cleansed. Uh, even if we do something like the surge, it only works for a little while, instant instantly leave, they go back fighting each other, the market dominant minority gets ethnic. Uh, how do we do something
1: that's morally acceptable? Like Great. Uh, so first of all, once again, I- I'm writing this from a foreign policy, uh, sort of an outsider's point of view. I feel like whatever your foreign policy angle is, you're hawkish, you're not hawkish, but you want to intervene for humanitarian reasons, whatever that is, I feel that we need to pay attention to the actual people on the ground first. And it seems like a no-brainer that you, you it can't be worse to know about the group dynamics there. Um, we cannot accomplish our foreign policy goals and have them go the way we think they're going to go if we don't take into account the importance of these group identities. So that's just, to me, very simple. Secondly, I have a different view of the surge. I have a, chapter, a section on it. I view the surge as a very hopeful example. So we're already in this mess. The popular will in the United States wants to be out of Iraq. It's a, when we have the surge in 2007. Um, it, there are it's just beheadings everywhere. It's practically a civil war. Um, mosques on both sides are being bombed. And what people don't realize is that with the surge, it wasn't just the uh, number of troops that were increased. Um, General Petraeus and General McMaster completely switched uh, uh, approaches and said, we need to understand the groups on the ground. They're basically a, a test case. We need to go, and they, General McMaster, now in the, in the White House, um, trained his troops. He gave them history books. He said, this is the, you have to know the difference between Sunnis and Shias, the Saints. Um, don't use derogatory terms. He, I'm not going to use a term. He says, well, "If you call this is like with calling them all gooks. If you use a derogatory term to refer to Arabs or what, you are basically giving the other side a win." And my read of this, and I had the honor of you know just having this event with General Petraeus, and he agreed is that we made such dramatic success in the worst of circumstances. And what I say is, if we could have gone in with that perspective. How different could have been? I mean, we made such progress and reverted. Civilian casualties went way down. Bombings, everything—it was the uh, the numbers are all in here. Um, And to your point, the reason we had to leave is because, um, not because it wasn't working, Uh, America just wanted out. So we we just had to. uh, And I'm no finger. You know, it's even the surge is partisan. Right, like it it stands for something but just on the approach to groups I also say that I think on the political side they didn't have the same successes on the military side with Prime Minister Maliki he just was a Shia tribalist
0: We need to stop there Amy, thank you so much Thank you For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.